Welcome to the Thought Leadership Project, a podcast by Jay Harrington and Tom Nixon, exploring how lawyers can turn expertise into thought leadership and thought leadership into new business. Welcome to another episode of the Thought Leadership Project podcast. I'm Jay Harrington. Tom Nixon is with me as always. Hi, Tom. Hey, Jay. I'm with you. Uh, although last week, apparently you pointed out I wasn't entirely with it because I made a mistake that you will atone for today. Yeah, you uh, you know, we 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 missed our overrated, underrated segment, which some people might appreciate. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, but but nonetheless, we're bringing it back this week. You were just so excited about our topic that I, think I was skipped right over it. Um, but uh, I'm going to ask you an overrated, underrated question today. And I'm interested whether you even have a perspective on this yet, uh, but but we'll see. Um, so the question would be um, uh, LinkedIn creator mode, overrated or underrated? Um, I don't think that's been rolled out to my account yet, Jay, to be honest really? with you. No, I haven't seen that. Okay. All right. Well, then you, you clearly don't have a perspective <laughs> no, on it yet. No, I noticed I would... you hadn't turned it on, but I was wondering um, if that was a conscious choice or or not. Um, I know that it's been, you know, getting rolled out, but I didn't know how extensively that had been um, uh, or not. So yeah, interesting. Yeah. But you have no opinion. No, well, share share with us. Uh, and we'll have to ask our guest if she has it too, but uh, share with us what it is. And, and do you find it overrated or underrated? Yeah. So it's a, it's a creator mode is an option that you can, um, many people have the opportunity to turn on or, or, or not. Um, it basically has, it creates a few changes to your profile. Um, and right now it's essentially, you can identify, you know, hashtags by which you, uh, you would like to be followed for these various topics, that kind of thing. Um, you also, it defaults to a follow button instead of a connect button on your mm. profile. Um, and it reorganizes the structure of your profile a bit where it moves up more of your content creation and moves your like about section down so that it's basically, I mean, the intention of the creator mode is that um, it, it gives more, I guess, emphasis to one's profile um, in terms of the content you're creating as opposed to your biography. Um, and I... I had not, I, I kind of waited several months just to, I don't know, I guess I thought it was a bit underwhelming. Um, and then I did turn it on about a month ago. I, again, I don't know whether there's been any noticeable benefit to that. Um, it's hard to know whether you're creating, you know, more people are following you relative to connecting or, or choosing not to do either um, in creator mode or not. But I'm more excited right now. I'd say it's a little overrated, but I am excited to see what they're going to do with it. I know um, for example, Tom Kelly Schweitzer, who we both know, um, is now part of a new, I think it's a new division within LinkedIn that's really focused on supporting creators. So those who are trying to create and share content on the platform. And I'm anticipating that things like, you know, when LinkedIn rolls its new audio feature out, you know, Clubhouse competitor or Clubhouse clone, whatever it might be. Um, that I think that will be a feature that maybe is only available when you're in creator mode. I, I don't know. I'm speculating here, but I feel like they have a, a longer term plan for this. And while it's a little bit underwhelming right now, I think it will add more robust features moving forward. So that's my take. Very interesting. Well, obviously, uh, LinkedIn recognizes you as a more prolific content creator than I, which is probably <laughs> true. So uh, be that as it may. So 
Yeah. I will keep right. my eyes out for it. Maybe I missed it. Who knows? I'll look. Okay. All right. All right. Good. Well, let's uh, let's turn to our guest today, who is a prolific content creator. Laura Genovich is joining us today. And Laura is a partner at the Michigan-based law firm Foster Swift, where her practice focuses on commercial and municipal law. And as you would know, if you follow Laura on LinkedIn, she's also a big advocate for clear legal writing, which is going to be a focus of our conversation today. So Laura, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to, to have you here. And I, I'll start by asking you, you know, what we were talking about in the overrated, underrated section. Have, are, do you have uh, creator mode on in your profile? I do. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Any, do you have any impression of it or, or thoughts or has it been kind of a, you know, it's hard to tell kind of situation? So I'm going to say overrated, although since Tom didn't really know about it, I'm not sure it's even rated, I guess. It's right. just... <laughs> um, I did turn it on because whenever there's a new technology thing like that, I want to experiment with it. Um, and I agree with what you said, Jay, that it elevates the content part. I like the kind of tagline it gave me after my um, description of what I do that I put in. It has, you know, talks about hashtag legal writing, hashtag municipal law you know, hashtag law firm mentoring, things that I'm passionate about, and then reorganizes it a bit. And I do think I now have, I have more followers than I have connections. So I think it probably resulted in, um, in, in getting more followers for whatever that is, whatever, for whatever that is worth. But, mm -hmm. but overall, it hasn't really changed my LinkedIn experience or the way people engage with my content. So uh, I'm probably going to fall on the overrated side at this point. Yeah, gotcha. All right, cool. Well, let's dig into what we're really here to talk about today, which is clear legal writing, um, which is an interesting topic to me. I know, you know, I think so much of legal writing, uh, you know, historically and, and still today is just, um, you know, filled with jargon, legalese, Latin terms, all that kind of stuff that lawyers are known for. Um, and, and you're advocating for something different. So maybe we could just set the stage and talk about what, what are we talking about when we're talking about clear legal writing? And is this, is this a movement that's been in place for a while? Would you call it a movement? Uh, what, just maybe set the stage with just talking about the topic a little bit and introducing sure. it. So when I talk about clear legal writing or drafting in plain language, I, I'm talking about creating legal documents that are, are clear and understandable for their intended audiences. So a document, uh, you know, a complex commercial agreement drafted in plain language is going to read differently than a consumer lease agreement for an apartment that's drafted in plain language. Even if they're both using what I would call principles of plain language, you still have to know your audience. But the, but the underlying current there is that we are avoiding unnecessary jargon and legal ease, uh, legalese, um, you know, using shorter sentences, more active voice, um, and avoiding, I guess, some of the unnecessary wording that has just kind of built up over time that that you really don't need and that distracts from the meaning and readability of the document. Um, in terms of it being a movement, it has been a movement for, for decades. I mean, tracing back, I think, at least to the 70s and 80s. Um, and I would say picking up steam. And what's interesting to me is that um, it's not necessarily the lawyers in private practice who are leading that charge. We're seeing a lot, um, some from you know, law school professors and academics, but also from the federal government, um, which if you go to, I think it's plainlanguage.gov, has a lot of resources for drafting different types of industry documents, including legal documents in plain language, um, and from private corporations. Um, and I've written about some of that on LinkedIn, about um, you know, uh, companies taking multiple 
hundred page agreements and condensing them down into one 10 page document that people can actually then understand. Um, you know, from my perspective, it's really hard for people to comply with contracts if they don't actually know what they say. Uh, so it makes a lot of sense to make these documents usable. Um, and often even, um, you know, sophisticated institutional clients don't always understand what they're having to sign when they're given a, you know, 50 page agreement to sign. So I, I think there's actually an ethical component to it too, which is how are we advising our clients? Are we advising them to sign something that they really don't understand? And how can we still do what we need to do as lawyers and make sure it has all the provisions it needs to have and has all the moving parts, has all the protections, but communicate that in a way that is, that is readable and usable. Yeah. Um, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I imagine, I mean, I'm just thinking back to my own experience practicing law. And I know that probably one, one thing that causes this problem to perpetuate would be the fact that, you know, lawyers are oftentimes, you know, the starting point for any drafting they're doing is some sort of template, right? You go on the server, you find something similar as a starting point, that kind of thing. And that could be, you know, that, that, that document could have been an iteration on, you know, a decade's worth of work. And, and so you don't necessarily go in and examine all the boilerplate. I mean, you do, but you don't think of it in terms of like, I want to try to reinvent the wheel necessarily. You don't have time to do that. So do you see that as one of the problems with this, where you really need to take a ground up effort to say, I'm going to totally rethink this template or this document that we've typically used as a starting point for drafting? Yeah, and I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there because if you think about law in general, it is built on history and tradition and um, we're not reinventing the wheel every day. And I think you're exactly right that um, lawyers, especially new lawyers, but let's face it, old lawyers too, you know, we, we find that template and it might've been a template that, you know, we ourselves used in the past or it might be something that a partner or the, the firm has used in the past. And, and you're right, you don't want to tinker with that. And I think there's a few reasons why lawyers do kind of just rely on what's been done before rather than um, recreating it. One is time, right? It takes more time to um, create something new and certainly more time to draft something in plain language. Um, and I think it's certainly not that lawyers are lazy at all. I think it's more that this has been used before and you don't wanna change it, right? We've used this loan agreement form for this long. If it's not broke, don't fix it. What I would say to that though is it is broken in a lot mm -hmm. of ways. Even if your clients haven't been sued over it, you know, if you put ambiguous contract language into Westlaw, right, you get tens of thousands of results. There are a lot of, um, you know, contract issues that get litigated. And, and I'll say plain language isn't limited to contracts, certainly. It's, it's a principle that carries through to all of our writing. Um, but I think when you start picking away at that, it might not be something where you can say, hey, new lawyer, go draft this from scratch, where mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you're a first yeah, right. Ignore what the firm has done for the last few years. <laughs> I don't think that's really sound advice either. I think what it comes down to is being more thoughtful and intentional, or excuse me, intentional, excuse me, intentional, yeah. <laughs> uh, intentional in what you are drafting and asking, do I understand this? So I have this boilerplate from this contract or um, ordinance or whatever it is that I'm writing. What does it mean? does it fit here and really thinking critically about it and if you don't truly understand what it means and how it fits with this transaction or this case um, then i don't think you should be using it um, and you should be drafting or, or if it's just unclear and how it's written then i do think you have to 
change it. Um, and if it's a matter of you being a junior attorney, then it's proposing it perhaps to the attorney that you are working with um, to revise that. Um, but I know in my practice, I, we have a lot of documents that have been used time and time again. And I don't think I've scrapped any all at once, but I have incrementally changed them. So I've started eliminating shall when it's not being used correctly. I've started getting rid of some of the unnecessary um, legalese here and after, things like that, um, more gradually. And I, and I think you, everybody can do that in their practice. Do you think, I'm curious what both of you think as the lone non-attorney on this podcast, do you think any of this could be driven by an attorney not wanting to run the risk of coming across as unsophisticated or that they don't have a full command of the law. And if I present a document in plain language, especially if I'm going against the grain now, that that somehow diminishes my stature or my gravitas as an attorney. Is, does that play into it at all? I think it does when people believe that plain language means dumbing it down or as I think one of my commenters on LinkedIn said, writing it at a second grade level. That's, that's really not what it is. Um, the basic principles, I think there's a lot and probably more than I could cover just in this podcast, but some of the simple things you can do to make it clearer without sounding unsophisticated or too pedestrian is, you know, drafting in the active voice, subject, verb, object, using verbs instead of turning verbs into nouns. Lawyers really like to take <laughs> verbs and make them nouns. So, so instead of, you know, the agency determining something, they'll say, you know, the agency renders a determination. <laughs> okay, why do we need to say the agency renders a determination? Can we just say the agency determines eligibility or whatever um, the situation is? Um, it, it is getting rid of some of that legalese. And, and I think you're right, Tom, that some lawyers feel kind of wedded to that, partly because it's tradition and partly because they do perhaps want to sound um, like a lawyer, right? Um, and I think the counter to that is, your clients would rather understand what you are saying than have you sound like a lawyer. As long as certainly baseline is you're providing the legal service you need to provide and the document does what it needs to do, but all the better if they can actually understand it when they read it. You touched on a, uh, an example, but maybe you could cite some more of some of the more common recurring problems that you see that kind of crop up again and again, and they're common. And maybe these are the easiest things that you can start to address as an attorney if you want to move in this direction. Sure. Um, so I'll pick on, I'll get some low hanging fruit and this actually gets a little controversial as much as talking about plain language can get controversial, <laughs> um, which is the word shall. Um, and you have some plain language advocates um, like Ryan Garner who say, you know, don't use shall at all. And then you've got others um, who say you can use shall as long as you use it correctly. And I would posit the correct way to use it is when you are imposing a duty on the subject of the sentence who is a party to the document. So you could say, buyer shall pay seller by this date because you're imposing a duty, right? That's what shall means, has a duty to. But you can't say notice shall be provided by June 1st because notice does not have a duty to be provided. It is not a party, it is not an actor, it cannot have a duty. Um, we use shall a lot and we use it imprecisely. So I, I call that kind of low hanging fruit because I think it's something that lawyers use that word habitually without using it correctly. Um, and you can you can change that easily. Um, I think, um, yeah, like I said, nominalizations, which is taking the verb, it's, it kind of goes to, to wordiness. 
if you can get rid of extra words and still say the same thing, you should. Your, your red pen should be your best friend in going through and trying to say it as directly and concisely as you can. Um, there are words that we lawyers often use um, as second nature, like, you know, here and after or herein and things like that, where courts have actually found them to be ambiguous because um, it's not always clear if you say herein, do you mean in this subsection, in this section, in this agreement, um, rather than um, specifying what exactly you're talking about. So basically, you know, say what you mean. Um, there's probably a, a lot of examples like that. And, uh, and, you know, I'll plug my LinkedIn because I like to pick at them. Um, I like to take aim at words that lawyers like to use, like such and said, um, which again can, can make your writing ambiguous. And if your writing is ambiguous, um, you're opening your client up to risk. It's not just a matter of whether it sounds nicer or somebody thinks it's more readable. Um, you can actually... Um, avoid legal risk by drafting it more clearly. Yeah. And Laura, I'll, I'll plug your LinkedIn content as well. And because the thing I like most about it probably is the fact that you're, you're taking the time not to just speculate or pontificate on these issues. You'll go find examples of where you know, certain sloppiness or ambiguity in legal writing actually has real world consequences. I, I, remember a post in particular where you discussed a case in which the, um, you know, a, the commonly used term of and slash or was, was utilized as a contract and it was the subject of um, litigation and controversy as to what I think I, you'll know that case better than me, but basically that's an area where, you know, we just sometimes are trying to check all the boxes and, and be, we think we're being careful in our drafting um, by using that sort of clause, but it's actually creating a tremendous amount of ambiguity sometimes. Yeah, it was. That was a municipal law case where it referred to as an easement that referred to sewer and or water lines. And um, and I can't remember the exact way the case uh, hinged, but it was if it was just sewer lines, you got attorney fees. And if it was water lines, you didn't. But whether it was sewer or water or both made a big difference in what one of the parties was entitled to recover. Um, and the court found that ambiguous and, you know, called it, I think, equivocal and I think called it a linguistic abomination. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. um, you know, courts have come down hard on some of these lawyerisms um, that, that we've used. So it's, it's kind of my mission to help lawyers detach from those um, and draft more clearly. Yeah. I was wondering what your perspective is in terms of uh, the role or the impact of judges in, in this whole movement as well. I mean, I find that there are, you know, part of my job uh, sometimes is, is doing work that involves reading um, opinions, even though I'm not practicing law anymore. Sometimes when I'm doing writing for clients and that kind of thing, it still requires me to dig in and read court opinions. And, and there certainly are judges and opinions where you read, you know, you read how they write and, and it's either a breath of fresh air or it's sort of back to the old, complex, archaic way of, of writing. Um, I, I read a recent opinion uh, that many people probably did. It was a short opinion by um, a three-judge panel from the Seventh Circuit, including Judge Easterbrook. I don't remember the other judges, but it was in the Indiana University vaccine mandate case, um, which they upheld. And, and it was just a, I think it was such a great example of, you know, how you can you can write something meaningful, analyze Supreme Court precedent and come to a conclusion in, I don't know, it was probably 600 words. So I thought it was really an impressive example of clear legal writing and action. I'm just curious what you think, what role you think judges have, have or have had in this whole, um, I guess, controversy movement, argument, that kind of thing. 
Sure, sure. Well, as with lawyers, I think there are judges that embrace that and take a lot of care in how they're writing opinions. And then judges, you know, for whom that's not as much of a priority and are, you know, not necessarily following all of those principles. Um, but it's nice, especially at the appellate level, I think both at the state and federal level, we have a lot of judges to look up to. Um, and, and I think that goes to the point as well that, again, clear legal writing is not just about transactional documents. It's about our briefs and our pleadings as well and, and getting away from some of the um, kind of old fashioned ways of writing those. But when you are a, a judge, you want to read something that is understandable as well. Mm -hmm. um, and you are more persuasive when you are clear and direct and concise, right? I think the, the, um, the more concisely you can make your argument, the better. And, uh, and so that uh, these plain language principles kind of lend themselves well to litigation practice as well. Yeah. I was curious if we could maybe shift gears real quickly to thought leadership writing, which is a different style. In my experience, and no offense to either of you on this, because I wouldn't put either of you in this category, but I found that there could be attorneys who could be absolutely magnificent writers and horrible writers at the same time. Same attorney, same time, right? So they're great writing in a legal venue or for a legal application, but you ask them to write maybe an argumentative article you know for a lay audience or a quick social media post and they freeze up or they just spit out the legalese so i'm curious how does your or how do you think people should approach it differently is there a way that you can make that mental shift laura to say okay i'm, I'm not an, quite the attorney in this venue as i am in this other yeah, that's a really great point. And, and we encounter that as a firm when we're writing newsletters or communications to clients and, and you ask somebody to summarize a new case and they do. And I say, no, no, I didn't want a law review article. <laughs> I, wanted a, yeah, right. I, wanted, I wanted a summary that um, that people can, can quickly read and understand. Um, so I think you do have to kind of mentally uh, recognize who your audience is and whatever kind of writing you're doing. So my writing um, for a contract is is in some ways different than my writing, obviously for a brief when I'm trying to persuade the court and very different when I'm writing for LinkedIn, different when I'm writing articles for um, for industry publications that I write for as part of my practice um, and different when I'm writing, you know, occasionally I write things, um, you know, outside of the legal arena and, and you have to be able to be aware of your audience and change your tone and, and how you approach that. You cannot write like a, like a lawyer, like you're writing for a court when you're writing on LinkedIn. Yeah, for sure. Well, let, that's a, uh, a good transition point. I want to talk a little bit about your approach to LinkedIn because I do think it's, um, you know, I know, I know that you, I think it was around, around the first of the year when you really dug in and, and started creating more consistent content on LinkedIn and, and by all accounts, you know, your, your posts have gotten a lot of engagement and, and people are paying attention to them. And I hear even from, I, I'll, I'll be talking to a client and I think I shared this with you before, Laura, where, um, you know, we'll be talking about a topic and, and they'll mention your name as someone they follow and, and when the issue of like clear legal writing comes up. So I think that's really cool. Um, but you know, someone might look at what you're doing on LinkedIn, talking primarily about clear legal writing and wonder, how is that, you know, you're, you're a lawyer, you, you're part of your job is developing new business. You know, we think about writing and, and especially content marketing, thought leadership marketing as trying to generate new business, but then they see you writing almost exclusively about clear legal writing for other lawyers. And they might wonder, well, how is that beneficial or why is she doing that? Maybe can you just talk a little bit about your, your approach and, and, you know, why you chose what you chose as a focus? 
Sure. Well, I'll say this all kind of came full circle because the reason I started posting on LinkedIn was from listening to this podcast. So <laughs> I'm really excited to, um, to be on here. Um, it was toward the beginning of the year and um, I had started listening to a few different legal related podcasts, just, you know, it was the middle of winter and <laughs> wanted mm-hmm. something new to listen to. Um, and I thought, I think this is something I could try out. I had been on LinkedIn in the sense of having a membership for a lot of years, um, but I didn't feel like I was maximizing that. And I thought it would be something really to explore. I was curious about what I could do with it. Um, And so I didn't really go into it with a game plan of I'm going to post and that's going to get me clients. Um, Because in my experience, um, you know, clients often come from relationships, you know, outside of, I would say in in real life in person, remember when we Mm -hmm. used to see people in person. (laughs) So I guess I didn't go in with that um, expectation. I more just wanted to, um, to kind of get out there and, and meet people in that in the LinkedIn world, so to speak. And So I started writing about legal writing because um, I teach legal writing as an adjunct professor at Cooley Law School. So it was something I was thinking a lot about. It's something I care a lot about. And I actually didn't want to write too much content specific because, uh, correct or not, I was afraid that I would feel like I was crossing a line into talking about my clients' cases too much. And I didn't ever want a client to feel like I was talking about their cases on social media. So I was a bit cautious in what I chose to write about. Um, And so, you know, my early posts were, were a little more general, and then I started getting more specific and okay, how can we as lawyers, since many and probably most of my connections at that time were other lawyers, how can we improve what we're doing as a whole? And one way I see that no matter what kind of area of law you practice is, is improving your written communication. Um, So that's kind of how I I started doing it. Again, kind of coming from a place of curiosity and wanting to engage a bit more with the platform. And then as I started posting, I got to know people. I now have connections all over the country who I've exchanged messages with, often just about legal writing. I mean, we are a bunch of legal writing nerds who say, hey, look at this great (laughs) opinion, or what do you think about this? What do you think about using this word? Um, But I've also enjoyed getting feedback from um, clients and from other attorneys who, um, whether within my firm or within the region or opposing counsel, um, will say, hey, um, I got to talk about this case. But by the way, I really like your LinkedIn posts. I wish more lawyers (laughs) would write like that. Um, So that's kind of how I, I came into it. And what has been beneficial for me as well is I'm putting together my thoughts on this, which are thoughts I've had and some things I've taught but I've never written this much about it before. And what I'm doing right now is assembling that at least as a first stage to use in mentoring and coaching um, new associates in our law firm. Because a part of what I do at our law firm is mentoring and coaching. It's something um, I, I feel very strongly about and being able to use that material that I've done for LinkedIn and then turn it into helping grow our firm and help our newer attorneys um, is just a, a really great benefit from my perspective. I have a follow-up to that. And I, I think they tell attorneys or litigators that you should never ask a question you don't know the answer to, but I'm going to do it anyway. Because you said something early on that we hear a lot, which was you said, I didn't go into it with a mindset that I'm going to post on LinkedIn and I'm going to get a bunch of clients. What was the result though, after months of doing this? what Were there any positive outcomes that you could say, well, I didn't intend to explicitly get clients, but I did. And that's what we hear yeah, a lot of too. There were, I, I did. I can say that I did develop some client relationships. I don't want to say that they picked up the phone and said, 
I, I like the clear legal writing and that's why I'm going to hire you. I think it was more being out there and being visible so that people um, got to know um, who I was and got to know my law firm a little bit through that, that when opportunities came up to work together, um, you know, I was a bit more of a known entity. Yeah, yeah that's great. It, it, it's, it's a dichotomy. It's, you know, we encourage people that if you get active on LinkedIn and in thought leadership marketing, the intent obviously is to market your business, your practice is to grow in some way. But you, if you go into it with that mindset where it's a gumball machine and if I put a piece of content in, then something's going to come out and I'm going to enjoy the treat. Then it just, that's not how it works. And that's an unfair expectation of the platform. It is. I don't view it as transactional like that. I never did. And I don't now. Um, I, I like doing it. I like sharing my thoughts on it and getting feedback. And I will say, and for those you know listening who are kind of new to this, it forces you to put yourself out there in a different way. Even if you're a lawyer who's in court all the time, who is fairly public and you're putting yourself out there in other ways, um, it's, it's a little bit different when you're putting um, your content your thoughts out there and people do not always agree with you. <laughs> so the first time someone disagreed with me, it was somebody who was pretty high profile in the world of legal writing. Um, and I considered deleting my LinkedIn account and going home, <laughs> but I didn't. <laughs> I licked my wounds and responded and uh, <laughs> moved mm. on. Um, but, but in that sense, I think it's, so, it's a means of growth as well. So for me, I saw it as an area where I felt a little bit uncomfortable but it was something I wanted to be better at doing. And it was very consistent with what I view as my mission, um, you know, missions I have at the firm. You know, I'm a lawyer, but I'm not just a lawyer, right? I, li I, I like the mentoring and coaching part of what I do. This felt very consistent with that. I like teaching as an adjunct professor. This really helped that. So for me, it was kind of part of, um, you know, serving clients is number one, but these other things that I do, I really enjoy as well. And this was a part of that bigger picture. Laura, let's say that a lawyer uh, in their maybe their first year, they've got six to nine months under their belt, and they, you know, they ask you to go grab a cup of coffee and say, you know what, I really feel like I, I want to improve my legal writing. Um, are there, you know, you might have touched on some of this in your prior advice, but would there be like two or three tips you would give them as as to where to really focus, um, you know, and and be able to make some meaningful improvement um, by focusing on a couple areas. Yeah, I think the first good tip is to read as much as you can. And I mean that in two different ways. One is to read um, books and materials about plain language. If you want to pick up books, that's great. Pick up things by Brian Garner. Pick up the Curmudgeon's Guide to Practicing Law because it's a great mm -hmm. read and it has some good legal writing tips as well. Um, one of my favorite tips, and I don't have the book in front of me, so I'm going to misquote it, but it basically says, if given the choice between using the word that and which, always use that. There are exceptions to this rule, but I will make those changes for you. If you use that, you will be right 90% of the time. And I have copied and pasted that advice and shared it with others. So that's a fun read. So there's reading about that. There's also um, just materials online you can read. But also read the materials by attorneys you know um, who are either mentors or um, leaders in your firm who you are working with. So you can get to know their writing style how they do things. Um, and hopefully the people you're working with also emulate those, those plain language or clear legal writing principles. Um, but just read as much legal writing as you can is, is always kind of my first step. Um, ask for feedback on your writing. Um, we as, as 
law firms want to give feedback and we try to give feedback, but I think there's also some responsibility on a new attorney to ask for that, um, for that feedback as well. So when you write something and you don't see it again, it's perfectly okay to follow up and say, hey, I just wondered if you had any comments on that memo or that brief that I drafted, you know, could I see the final version that went out or, you know, could I see your red line changes? Um, because the only way you're going to learn really is to be getting that feedback. Um, and then I guess a third, and this isn't just for new lawyers, but but probably for everyone drafting, is just um, to be to be thinking, which sounds obvious, but um, I said often we are kind of reusing documents um, because we've used them before, or you know you've got the boilerplate things, um, or you're mishmashing things together. But just always before you shoot it off, take a look. You know, does this make sense? Am I clearly communicating what I'm trying to communicate? Who is my audience and is this well suited for that audience? And so don't don't check that, you know, kind of basic level of critical thinking at the door. And then proofread. That's my could I, yeah. Could I could I add one more? Yeah. Because I, I I like what you said about reading. You know, they say if you want to be a better songwriter, listen to better music. And if you want to be a better writer, read more. I would encourage people to get out of the legal lane and read some thought leadership content that's completely not legalese. And I think you'll get a better sense for how <laughs> us real people think and read and, and write. So um, for sure, do a lot of legal writing. But would you agree that, you know, get outside, and even if it's into fiction and, and oh, read yeah. how like, mm -hmm. because I think some of the most accessible literature is written at a very accessible level. They're not trying to out sophisticate the reader. And I think there's a lesson to be learned there. Yeah, I think that's very true. And I, I, yeah, I think a lot of lawyers are avid readers and they need to remember that the type of style that they are reading in those other genres can actually apply to what they are to what they are doing. As you said, this is how people talk outside of the law or write outside of the law. Um, so whether you're reading, um, you, you know, what I kind of call like the, the books that have some kind of academic basis, it's somebody with a degree or a PhD, but they're writing something that's more for the general public. Those are always fun reads and are usually a good example of taking complex material and making it really relatable, almost like, you know, like Freakonomics kind of stuff, right? Where mm -hmm. you can take some really heavy data, but you're making it very engaging for the reader. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, you know, Adam Grant, those I agree with you, the academics that can really make um, complex topics accessible. And I, I really like Laura, the suggestion about seeking out advice. I, that was critical for me when I was um, a young lawyer. I was in the corporate restructuring group at, at a large firm and the, the bankruptcy lawyers, corporate bankruptcy lawyers, I mean, there's a lot of litigation and, and a lot of good writers, but I found what I did was I sought out a partner in the in the litigation group itself, who I knew was a just an outstanding lawyer and a great writer. And I tried to read as much of his work as possible and sit down with him. And he gave me so much great advice that I was able to incorporate where, um, I don't know, he just was really thoughtful about it. So I definitely recommend that for people. Um, Laura, can I, I, I know I've, I've at least on one occasion emailed you with ideas like, Hey, can you address this issue uh, in legal writing? Because it's something I'm interested in. I, one one thing that I, I wonder if you've given any thought to, this is for maybe a future LinkedIn post, but I, I, I read something the other day about the use of more, um, you know, it's another movement, which is legal design, kind of using design frameworks and thinking in terms of making, you know, legal processes and even documents more simple and straightforward. So I was curious as to whether, in the future, you might uh, think about like that intersection of clear legal writing and legal design and what, what impact those two things might have working together 
Yeah, I think document design um, does play a role. And, and I realize I think change is very slow in the legal profession. So sometimes mm -hmm. when we're talking about legal design, it's just a matter of, um, you know, formatting and maybe some tables. We're not quite to infographics yet. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> our, our legal arguments. Um, but I think that very much goes to the to the usability of the document. And we've all seen um, the lengthy, dense, impenetrable blocks of text that even as a lawyer, you have to take three different colors of highlighter to try to parse out what it means. And so to me, you know, document design um, is very much a part of clear legal writing and, and good um, drafting because you've got to make it, um, you know, organized in a way that's readable. You've got to have the white space. You want to break it up so that um, so that people can use it, and not just clients, not just the end user, but other lawyers. I don't want to read something that's you know a 150 word sentence all on one block of text. Um, a judge doesn't want to read that in a brief either. Well, I had no idea you took requests, Laura. So here Jay's been, you know, Ew. requesting LinkedIn posts from you. <laughs> so I'm going to be sending you a few of my own. Yeah, I, I would love that. Send me requests and uh, from, from attorneys. And I've actually gotten, since I've been doing this, I've had some clients email me for, not for a request of what to post, but for advice. <laughs> How do you think this is worded? And, and I love that stuff because certainly I focus on legal writing, but I think clear writing is important for anyone and any knowledge workers, right? I mean, all we really have as knowledge workers is our is our words and our time. Um, so how we use those is really important. Awesome. Well, Laura, thanks so much for your time today. This is really interesting. I'm sure our listeners will get quite a bit out of it as we did. So um, what would be the best way to for people to connect with you? Would it be LinkedIn? Would you want to point them to your profile there? We would certainly yeah. include that in their show notes. Yeah, absolutely. I'm Laura Genovich on LinkedIn, and that is the best way to get in touch with me. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you again for joining us and thank you to our listeners as well. And we'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you for listening to the Thought Leadership Project. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, visit thethoughtleadershipproject.com.